The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. I am so grateful to hear your voices. And um, listen, before we get into our text, can I share some good news? I'm going to do it anyway. But um, I love what God is doing in our church right now. And I don't say that lightly. I, I, we are in a season right now where we are seeing, literally seeing God answer prayer week to week. And... Um, things that we've been praying for, we're literally seeing and celebrating them. I mean, last week was a good example of that, where we um, got to see Paul and Jolene, got to meet Paul and Jolene with literal answers to prayers. And um, here, as we're starting the work of planting another church, um, just God is good. And this week, uh, before we get into Romans 9, I get to share another I get to share something else, and um, uh, after so much prayer and searching, God has like literally led us to a, I call him a special unicorn, I don't think he wants to be called that, a needle in a haystack, I'll, I'll say that, uh, that's better, yeah, um, we, we officially hired a, a youth and children's director. <laughs> Such an answer to prayer. Such an answer to prayer. Um, we are so thankful. His name is Ross Rorbo. I'm saying Rorbo. I'm saying it confidently. I hope that's the way it's pronounced. I asked him and forgot. Um, but he, he and his wife, Michelle, are, are going to be moving here um, with us from College Station. Um, so all the Aggies are excited about that. Uh, But he'll be here with us, starting with us in June. We are so excited. We're going to be giving you more information about Ross over the next few weeks. But for now, God is good. God has been so good to our church. We're excited to just continue the work of making disciples here at Stone Oak. And, And I know that Ross is excited to get to work making disciples in our kids, our students, our families, Um, we look forward to what God has. Now, speaking of excitement, I am also really looking forward to our time here this morning in Romans. So if you have your Bibles, would you grab them? Would you open with me to the book of Romans? We are going to be continuing in chapter 9. This is a fun one. Uh, While you're getting there... um, you know what one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is? One of the most, I think, relatable. It's also one of the oldest stories in the Old Testament. It stands out because it, it seems like no matter what um, culture is like, this, this story is relatable. It's the story of Job. I really love the story of Job. Um, so before we crack into Romans 9, hopefully this will make sense why I'm taking time to do this. Can you just think back with me on the story of of Job? Job was the man. 
really was. He was uh, successful. He was wealthy. Um, he was a man of good character, good reputation. He was the man. He's also a faithful man, a man who had faith in God. He was a man of prayer. We read in the first chapter, he is literally interceding for his kids. That's the kind of man Job was. He was the man. And then the absolute, just unthinkable happens for Job. Uh, We get this, scripture takes us to this scene in heaven. This scene in heaven where, um, the way it reads, God is kind of bragging about Job. He's kind of bragging uh, to the enemy, to Satan, saying, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on earth, a blameless, upright man, fears God, turns away from evil. And to this, um, Satan says, yeah, that's true, but he only does that because you bless him. You, he only loves you because you protect him, your blessings. And if you, if you take away those blessings, if you take away the protection, if you take away all those good things, guess what? He's not going to love you. He's not going to serve you. He's going to walk away from you. He's going to hate you. God, he only loves you because of your stuff. And then, again, the absolute unthinkable happens. God says, in a nutshell, go. Go. Take those things. Take the stuff. Take the blessings even. Take his health. But he's reminded, just don't touch his life. And in this moment, Satan gets to work. In a matter matter of moments in the text, Job loses it. He loses his possessions, loses his wealth, he loses his property, he even loses his children, and in the midst of all that hurt and all that pain, Job rises up, tears his robe, shaves his head, that's what they did when they were mourning back then, and he fell to the ground, and scripture says he worshiped, and he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will return. He says, the Lord gave, the Lord is taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And then scripture says in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. Whew. Fortunately, Satan wasn't done. After this, moments later in the text, he comes against Job's own health, excruciating, unceasing, unbearable pain. What is happening, God? What are you doing? Even his wife says, Job, curse God and die. That'd be better. And to this, the text says, Job asks, well, should we receive only the good from God? And it again says, Job didn't sin with his lips. So the first three chapters are incredible. They're painful. And they lead us to say, why? Like, why, God? Why would you do this, God? And you know what? That's exactly what Job and his friends around the campfire do for the next 35 chapters. They come together and they say, why? 
they try to get to the bottom of the catastrophe. If you read it, it so many of them are saying, Job, this must be on you. Like, there, there's got to be some dark sin in your life. Got to be, right? There's got to be something, some nasty sin that caused this. And Job says, no, no, there isn't. And his friends so lovingly say, we hear you, Job, but there is. Got to be something here. And, and again, they go back and forth. They go back and forth. They spend chapter after chapter after chapter talking about why God would do this, trying to give the reasons for this. I want you to remember, they had no idea what happened in that scene in heaven. None. No clue. They had no idea what was really happening. They had no idea what God was doing. They had no idea. Yet, they spend hour after hour after hour after hour talking about what they don't know. And doing a really lousy job at comforting their friend. They were crying out, God, where were you? Where were you? And if you remember in uh, chapter 38, we're going to get to Romans, I promise. In uh, chapter 38, what happens? Well, God shows up and he finally speaks. He speaks and oh, does he speak. God says, you've been crying out to me, questioning me. Where were you, God? It's my turn. Job, where were you? Where were you when I made the heavens and the earth? Where were you when I made the stars and the galaxies? Where were you when I made the weather? Surely you guys were there. Surely you guys know when all the animals, you know, their schedule, they give birth, they go to the stream. Surely you know that. Surely you know about the donkey, the ostrich, the horse. What about the hawk? You know about that. In the nesting, you know about, surely you guys know. And after God just comes and shows his might, his sovereignty over all creation, over the big, over the the small, then God looks directly at Job and says, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. He says, dress for action like a man. That's like, man up, Job. I will question you, and you will make it known. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Woo! After all God sets before Job, his power, his sovereignty over all things, and after He says this. Do you know what Job's response, the only response that Job could have to all of this? Says Job answered, behold, I am of small account. Little bit of an understatement. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. That's, in other words, I'm going to stop now. I have spoken once. I will not answer twice. I will proceed no further. In other words, again, not talking now. Then he says, I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
He says, God, I know that you have said, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And then I love Job's words. He says, therefore, I have uttered things that I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Okay, a couple things here. Number one, Job never got his answer. Can we just acknowledge that? Never got his answer. He never got the why. Uh, God didn't show up and say, stop it, Job, but let me tell you what was going on. He didn't give him the answers to all the pain. Number two, God also didn't like explain the scene in heaven to Job. Like we read the story, we get the whole picture, we get the viewpoint, and they're like, Job, be strong, because we know he was bragging on you. Job and his friends did not get that explanation. They didn't have that viewpoint, and I, I just think that that is incredibly relatable, because as we go through our life, we don't get the viewpoint. We don't, we don't get all the answers, the viewpoint of God. Just like Job, we're not often given the why. And you know what he got, though, instead, what Job got? Job was reminded of two things. God is God, and he is not. God is God, sovereign over all things, and Job was reminded that he, in fact, was not. And you know what that led him to do? Worship. It led him to fall down and to worship. Job says, I uttered things that I had no business talking about, things that I didn't know, things too wonderful. And yet Job was reminded, nothing is beyond my God or his control. There's nothing he does not know. Such an incredible story. Job's eventually restored, but don't, don't um, miss this because although this story is ancient, it's all too familiar. It's all too relatable. There's something deep in us that cries out to understand mystery. There's something deep in us that cries out to understand when things don't make sense. The hows. There's something deep in us that longs to know the answers. That we're finite creation longing to know the infinite. And, and too often God's response to us is simply like, Job, I'm God, you're not. We're not given the answers. No, okay, here's why I start with Job. Not only is it one of my favorites, but here's why I start with it. I, I truly believe, and I see this section of Romans 9 a bit as Paul's New Testament version of Job. In our text here, Paul is kind of just dropping this truth that can be so difficult for our minds to wrap around. Um, Herb unpacked for us last week as the text said, before they'd been born, done anything right or wrong, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. What? He said, look, I, I'm going to have I'm mercy on Moses and I harden Pharaoh's heart. He says, so then God has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whoever he will. What? Now we're coming to a text our text this morning, and coming out of a text like that, what Paul's going to do is he's going to express some of the questions that you probably have boiling. 
Here in our text, verse 19, where we're going to start, he says, you say to me then, why does he, that's God, still find fault for who can resist his will? In other words, if God's going to have mercy on whoever he wants, and he's going to harden whoever he wants, why does it matter? And how can he judge us? Are we just pawns in this little game? If God's sovereign, are we just pawns? I mean, how does this all work? More than that, there's this sense of a deeper cry of foul. It's a, I mean, we wouldn't say, how dare you, God? Maybe, but there's this sense of, God, this isn't right. If you made Pharaoh that way, how can you judge him? If you made me this way, how can you judge me? I would guess that many of you have asked questions like these. I would guess many of you have heard questions like this asked to you. If our God is sovereign and in control of everything, then how does he have the right to judge me? And why does any of this matter? Last week, we talked about the sovereignty of God. You know what this verse is, this text is? This is really our attempt to wrap our minds around the sovereignty of God, for us to understand it. It's like Job and his friends around the campfire. That's what we're trying to do. Job and his friends around the campfire, sitting around and talking about things that are too wonderful, that are too wonderful for us to fully understand. How is he sovereign and I have free will? How is he sovereign over all things and there's still evil? How does this work? Let me tell you, I've been in countless conversations with Christians and seekers alike with this same, these same questions. And right into that, let's listen to what God's word says. What Paul says here in Romans, listen to this, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Are you picking up the Job vibe like I am? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Let's pause here because Paul is going to turn everything upside down. Actually, probably more correctly, right side up. As we come to this, you know what the problem is with Job and his friends around the campfire. You know what the problem was? I want to make sure to get this one right. Um, the problem is not that they were coming to God with their questions. That was not the problem around the campfire. The problem was not them coming to God with their questions because God can handle your questions. If you look through scripture, there is countless examples of the people of God coming to God with their questions, and God invites you to do that, to 
come to your God with your questions, with your doubts, to come to him. We see, take the Psalms. It's just Psalm after Psalm of the people of God expressing their questions and their doubts to their God. The problem is not with us coming to God with our questions and our doubts. In fact, brother, sister, you are invited to do that. That's what being a child of God is. That's what prayer is. You can come to your God with your questions, with your doubts, your fears, coming before the Lord with those things is not the problem. So what was it? What is the problem? The, the problem is not bringing your questions to God. The problem is when you start answering those questions for your God. The problem is when we don't understand, when we cry out to him and we don't hear anything right away, and we can't understand. And so what we try to do is we step into that silence, we step into that hurt, we step into that situation or that debate, we get around the campfire, and we start answering for God like we know, like we see, like we are the sovereign, like we are God. We start answering for God. See, that is the problem. And to push on this a little more, the problem is when we begin to answer for God, when we do that, what we're really doing is we're kind of shaping God the way we want him to be shaped. We want him to say something and we shape him so that he says it. We create our own versions of God that fit with our viewpoint and our perspective our understanding. That's a problem. (laughs) That's a problem. You might say, Pastor, I don't do that. We don't do that. I mean, maybe they did, but we don't, you know, create God in our own image. Unfortunately, church, we do. See, at times, we create a God that we can fully understand and a God that fully fits into our boxes. that fully fits. Rather than trusting what we don't know, trusting the sovereign God who is beyond us, rather than trusting him, we are uncomfortable with the idea that there is something we don't understand fully. We're uncomfortable with the mystery, so we fill in the gaps and we create God in our own image. My God is like this. We say things like, oh, my God wouldn't do that. See, the problem, church, is not us bringing our questions to God. The problem is when we start answering those questions for our God, creating our God in our own image. That is the problem. That's the campfire problem. To use Paul's image here of the potter, I think too often we see ourselves as the potter shaping our God from the clay. And although not many of us have, you know, idols of clay or wood or metal in our house um, or our homes, we still have our idols that we form. And, And Paul just turns this right set up and reminds us, you are not 
the potter. You are the clay. And your God is the sovereign potter. Any potters here? I didn't think so. Um, I'm certainly not. Um, As a potter, if you were one, the clay, your material that you use, guess what? You have creative rights over that material. That clay's yours. You are the potter, and that clay is the clay. You have the right to take that clay and to form it and to shape it and to make from it what you desire. And let me push this a little more. You'd be a crazy person if you as the potter took the clay and and sought to get the permission of the clay before you start shaping that clay for your purpose. That's called crazy. To say, you know what, clay, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about making a vase. Is that cool with you? No, that's crazy. You don't do that. Why? Because that clay is yours to mold and to form. You are the potter, and that is the clay. So some clay, it's a plate for food, a brick for a house, a vase for flowers, containers for stuff. The potter shapes the clay according to the use that the potter has. It is shaped and designed by the potter for its purpose under the sovereign care of the designer of the potter. Here's the problem, though, with this analogy that Paul gives us. We really don't like that. We really don't like that. I mean, we don't like to think of ourselves as just mere clay. Like, we like to think we have more control than that. In fact, I think it is one of the most unpopular texts that I could preach. Because we think about this and we see this and we say, well, what, 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 I'm more than that. Like, I, I have more control than that, right? I mean, I, I, pastor, what about my rights? What about my rights? We are Americans and we love our rights. I do too. And it turns out scripture talks a lot about your rights. But here's the thing. Your rights are not rooted in yourself. Your rights are rooted in what's called the imago dei. You know what that means? The image of God. Your rights are rooted in the fact that you are created in the image of God. That's where your rights come from. That no matter who you are, where you come from, you have incredible value and dignity. Because you are created in the image of God. That's why as Christians, we believe in the sanctity of all life. All life, because we are created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. Don't miss this. The Imago Dei, you know what it reminds us of? It points us back to the fact that you are clay in the hand of your potter. It points us out that we are molded by our creator with care and precision into the image of our potter. That your value is that you are a masterpiece of your God, created in the image of God. See, here's our problem though. Forgive me, I did, somehow I taught Latin for a year. I have no business doing that, but I did. So forgive me, I'm going to go back to some Latin here. So the church has always used the Imago Dei 
um, I'm going to create my own here. The problem that we have is when we try to go from the amago dei to the amago mei. You know what that means? The amago dei, as we said, means the image of God, that we are created in the image of God. The amago mei means image of me. God created in my image. When we switch, we start to put our, we try to become the potter. And we try to make God our clay. And so Paul just speaks right into this, steps into this, breaks us down and says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? As hard as it may be, I need you to hear me here. You and I are called to trust in a God that we will never fully wrap our minds around or understand. That takes a lot for control freaks to admit. You and I are called to trust in a sovereign God that we will never understand in full. You are finite, he is infinite. You are limited, he is limitless. You are limited by your flesh, by time, by space, yet your God is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. The Christian life is all about trusting in a God that's bigger than you. If, I'm going to push this. If you can fully understand your God, he's not Yahweh. He's something you've created in your own image that fits in your own box. Because as, as hard as this might be, let me give you the flip side, the good side of this. Church, we get to take refuge in the fact that you can't fully understand your God, in the fact that he is beyond you, in the fact that he is bigger than you, and in the fact that while you see things in part, he sees them in full. We place our trust in a God who sees all, knows all, is beyond all. Um, as I asked how many were potters, none of you raised your hands, including me. So I'm not a potter. But I love books. So let me give you another example. Um, I think this example might help. I hope it does. Let me just pretend that I were to give you a 350-page book. Okay? I were to hand it, hand it to you. Now, you might know the general idea because you read the back of the book. You might know kind of the synopsis. Um, but you never actually have read the book. And I hand you this book, and I open to page 217. And I let you read page 217. Only page 217. One page, 217. After reading that page, how many of you would feel confident how many of you would feel like it would be appropriate for you to then call the author and to question him about his decision on page 217 for a certain character in a certain situation? With your one page of knowledge, how many of you would feel good 
with calling up the author and telling him how he should have done it, what he has missed, what he should have done with a certain character and a certain situation, how many would feel comfortable then calling everyone you know and telling everyone how foolish this author was and how you could have done it better? I would hope none of you would feel comfortable with doing that. And why is that? Well, it's because we know in that, that situation that we are limited in our understanding. We would know in that situation how ignorant that we were. Church, you know what happened in Job? You know what happened in Job? Job realized, oh, I might not know what I'm talking about. I'm convinced that one of the most beautiful things in the life of a believer is when they come to the realization, oh, I don't know what I'm talking about. To use Job's words, I've uttered things that I don't understand. <laughs> Too wonderful for me, which I didn't even know. As obvious as this may all sound, I, listen, you're not God. You're not the potter. You're not the author. And because that is true, no matter what you face in this life, our responsibility is to trust in him, in the, trust in him through the unknown, through the mystery, to trust the potter, that he has not abandoned you, that he is sovereign and that he is good, and that he is working all things together for the good. I want to push this just a little deeper, just one more step deeper. And I want to drive us to see something here. This whole idea of us being the clay, him being the potter, and us not understanding, and him being sovereign, um, I want to push just one step deeper because there is an unparalleled beauty and joy for us when we stop trying to be the potter. When we stop trying to be be the potter and instead start trusting the potter and realize that we are the clay in the potter's hand. I want to speak directly to you this morning, Christian. Because scripture is very clear on this one. In fact, I want to read something with, um, with you. Uh, this comes from Paul's words in Ephesians. And um, I want to give some good news to some fellow lumps of clay. All right? Here's the good news. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the air, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Pastor, you said this was good news. I'm getting there. This is who we once were. And I love the but God moments in scripture. This one's a good one. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved, raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show 
the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not the result of any work so that no one may boast. That's who you were. That's what your God has done to save you. And that's who you are now in Christ. Take all that in. Take this in to all who are in Christ, to all who have been saved by grace, who have placed your trust in Christ. Listen to this final part. Paul reminds you, for we, church, brother and sister, we are his workmanship. We, fellow lumps of clay, are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Church, when we stop trying to be God, when we stop trying to fight God, when we stop trying to be the potter, control everything, explain everything, when we stop trying to make our God into our own image, when we stop it, and we're free to walk in the beauty and joy of simply trusting the potter who is sovereign. The question that comes out of a text like this is simple. Do you trust him? If you're the, if you're the lump of clay and he is the potter, do you trust him? When we stop trying to be the potter and we start trusting the potter's hand, and the potter's purpose, then we start to realize that we are the potter's workmanship. We can start to realize that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. We can start to realize that God has a plan for our lives, that he loves us, that he has designed us, that he has placed you right where you are to accomplish all of the things he has for you to accomplish. Which he, this text says, before, prepared for you beforehand. That's just incredible. Church, there is an unparalleled joy when we stop trying to be the potter, stop trying to be the author, and when we trust the potter's hand, the potter's plan, and we walk in it. Church, your life has incredible value because you're created in the image of God. And your God is sovereign over all things, every detail of your life, past, present, and future. He is sovereign over it all. And your God has a plan and a purpose. And as in Job's word, that cannot be thwarted. And it drives us again to the ultimate question behind it all is do you trust him? Do you trust him with your life? Do you trust the potter? Christian, do you not only trust him with your salvation, but do you trust him with your life even when you don't fully understand? I don't know about you or where you are, but there are things in life that I don't fully understand. Do I trust him? And listen, if you're here and you're not sure if you trust Jesus, you're not sure if you've ever placed your trust in Jesus, 
I truly believe that today is the day of salvation. The day when you respond to the God who has called you from the foundations of the world to be his lump of clay. The day when you trust the potter and walk in the joy of being a part of his creation. Scripture says that if you repent of your sin, you trust in Christ for your salvation, that you're a new creation, the old is passed away, behold, all things are new. That is the invitation this morning. The call to all of us is to trust in the sovereign potter's hand. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to your word, as we come to a text like this, Lord, we are reminded of just how big you are. How small we are sometimes. And so instead this morning of us sitting around the campfire like Job's friends and trying to find a way to really understand the sovereignty of your plan in your hand, instead of us trying to just fit you into our boxes, instead of all of that, Lord, this morning what we want to do instead is we want to come around that campfire to simply rest in the things that we cannot fully understand. To instead come around and to rest in the fact that you are the potter and that we are the clay. To rest in the fact that we might not understand. We might not know why you're doing what you're doing. We might not know why things are turning out the way they are. We might not know but it's not ours to know. So this morning, as we sit around the campfire, instead of answering questions for you, we come to you with our questions. We come to you with our hearts open. And we trust you. For everyone, anyone here who is listening to this, is never placed their trust in you, in the potter. I pray that today is the day, that now is the time. Your word says that as we repent of our sins and place our trust in Christ, that you transform us the old is indeed passed away and that behold all things are new and I just pray for all of us as we encounter your word the sovereignty of God that as we encounter that that you would drive us to our knees in humility and that we would walk out of this place having our trust built in the sovereign potter's hands 
So Lord, we give you the glory for that. And we thank you. In Jesus' name.